to Dorothy Mary Benson, 7 Queen's Road, Parktown, Johannesburg. Notice in terms of paragraph A of subsection 1 of section 10 of the Suppression of Communism Act, 1950. Whereas I, Balthazar Johannes Verster, Minister of Justice, am satisfied that you engage in activities which are furthering or may further the achievement of the objects of communism, I hereby, in terms of paragraph A of subsection 1 of section 10 of the Suppression of Communism Act 1950, prohibit you for a period commencing on the date on which this notice is delivered or tendered to you, and expiring on the 31st day of January 1971, from, one, absenting yourself from the residential premises situate at 7 Queens Road, Parktown, Johannesburg, at any time except, a, between the hours of 6 in the forenoon and 7 in the afternoon of any day not being a Saturday, Sunday or public holiday... I stood there absolutely stunned and I was very shocked. It was very strange. In fact, I'd been expecting something far worse. I'd been expecting arrest and to be taken off for interrogation. On the 4th of February 1966, following her coverage of the Eastern Cape trials, South African freelance writer and reporter Mary Benson was placed under house arrest in Johannesburg. Nine pages of restrictions, house arrest every night, through weekends and public holidays, restriction to the city, weekly reporting to the police, and clause after clause of bans. Ban from gatherings which I knew was legally interpreted as being with more than one person at a time. Clause 5 banned any writing, even poetry, with subclauses A, B, C, and D, which included a ban on preparing, compiling, printing, publishing, disseminating, and transmitting. Clause 6 said no visitors to the house, apart from a medical practitioner. No sooner had I read it than a friend, a journalist, drove up to the front steps. I hurried out to explain... He was as stunned as I. I quickly handed him notes about the Eastern Cape, which, until half an hour ago, had been a perfectly legal act on my part. You don't ever know why you're placed under bans or house arrest. It only takes the minister to write you these pages and pages of banning orders saying that uh, he believes you're furthering the aims of communism. And you have no way of answering back because nobody can quote you. They're banned from quoting you in newspapers. So uh, you just assume, and I assume that the reason for the restrictions was that I'd been sending material, offering to send material to members of Congress in Washington and to the New Republic magazine in Washington and their replies to me had all very blatantly been opened. 
And so when the banning orders had a totally new restriction in them that uh, I was banned from sending any material whatsoever out of the country, it seemed to me obvious that it was the Eastern Cape that was the reason. We came out of the building into streets strident with traffic. As we threaded our way along the crowded pavements, the wind freakishly flicked our faces with powdery dust. He moved lazily, but covered the ground fast. I had to hurry to keep up. As we were passing a towering new building complex, a white foreman shouted at Blacks unloading a truck. I felt exhilaration ebb in the plaguey atmosphere as I tried to keep pace with the preoccupied, angular man beside me. A scrap of newspaper settled against my ankle and took an effort to shake off. The sun had gone in. Clouds bulked. We had to wait for a traffic light. As he watched it impatiently, You will soon get the hang of the job, he said, once you've studied some of the court records. The vital task, he continued, when the green light released us and we strode on, is to expose what is going on in the Eastern Cape. The Eastern Cape has always been the most militant area of South Africa. It's where they first got mission education. And in fact, blacks had the vote there from early in the 19th century until it was taken from them finally in the 1930s. And some very great black leaders came from there. It had been the area of the frontier wars as well. And uh, New Brighton, one particular township in Port Elizabeth, during the great campaign in 1952, when the ANC organised defiance of apartheid laws, that had been the area to provide most of the people who voluntarily went to jail in that protest. And it was as a result of that that the security police in the area, I think, were determined to get their revenge and to purge that area of all political activity. Two men sat at tables before the magistrate, counsels for the defence and the prosecution. Between them, a blonde adjusted a tape recorder. Beside me, on a backless bench, huddled a group of Africans, three men and two women. From round their necks hung squares of cardboard with one, two, three, four, five, six, roughly chalked on. Number one wore an imitation leather jacket, the rest the assorted garments of the poor. Number four was in the box giving evidence. Next to him, a man with a fresh complexion interpreted questions from English into choicer and the replies from choicer into English. The cardboard square marked four flapped in a draught of air and the man, he was quite young, bearded in torn overalls, put up a hand to still it. I tried to piece together his defence. He denied belonging to a banned organisation. He denied attending tea parties to raise funds. He denied distributing leaflets. He seemed to deny everything. Really, 
It was quite obscene what went on in those trials. The men were sent to Robben Island and for simply having a little fundraising tea party for the ANC, not even connected with violence at all, they could be sent to Robben Island for six to eight years. Um, so that for one... Uh, for one misdemeanor, say, they would break it down to about four charges with one or two years' sentence for each part of the charge. And they were getting away with it. And uh, before I went down, I had read about it building up the, uh, a year or two before in the left-wing newspaper, which was the only paper that had taken much interest at all, and then, of course, was banned... And I went to see the editor of the Rock Daily Mail to tell him about it all. As a result, he sent down his finest reporter, who stayed a couple of days. I became quite obsessed to tell the world about that story. At the time, all that I did get uh, space for was short articles in the London Observer. I did a couple of articles in local papers there. Then I wrote a an anonymous pamphlet, because I was still in South Africa. And then, of course, came the novel with everything slightly adapted. And uh, that, the BBC, got me to turn into a radio play. I was very pleased to do that. So I feel that finally the story is on record... The story went on record, but its author was silenced by banning and house arrest. For Mary Benson, house arrest was the outcome not merely of the Eastern Cape trials, but of a long personal odyssey through South African history. An odyssey which began, strangely enough, in a white, middle-class, English-speaking background in Pretoria. A background where racial prejudice was simply a way of life, both at home and in school. I think school did emphasise um, the fact that we regarded natives as other beings who were uneducated. We didn't even know that there were educated blacks. And yet never once at school did we ever learn anything accurate about Africans and about Africa as being their country that we had virtually invaded. We learnt a good deal about colonial history, oddly enough, in India and Canada, America, and we learnt about what were called the Kaffir Wars, but we didn't learn anything realistic about South Africa. Of course, no natives would ever have dreamt of attempting to come into our world. There was just no question. They were totally segregated long before the word apartheid, which is apartness, was coined by the Afrikaners. And the only time I became more conscious of them was driving with my mother to her golf course when we would go through a native township and one would look out on these little shacks and small houses and people milling around but again not really question it all they were just there 
to be our servants. Our small brick house in the hospital grounds stood next to the jail. Nanny, Mars Eliza Miles, a cockney from London, England, starch-aproned, snug-corseted, smelling of sunlight soap and records blue, took Poppy and me for walks. Through the front gate, to the sound of loud Zulu gossip from Sam the cook and the garden boy, and up Potgeter Street, past the red-brick turreted wall with its small barred windows from which black faces peered down. Then on we went, past the warders' houses, where black convicts hosed and mowed neat lawns, watched by a white warder who slouched over his rifle. Blacks to us in the family were really, I think, part of the furniture. And seeing the black faces and seeing the black prisoners in their striped vests working in the warders' gardens... They just, for me, were part of the scenery. I never really thought about them as human beings. We had a, a cook, he was a Zulu, called Sam, and I was very fond of him, but never thought of him or his family or the fact that he worked for us for most of the year and only had a very brief time with his family back in Zululand. Really didn't know about that at all. In the house... We had Sam cooking and cleaning, and then there was always a garden boy. We always called them boy, although they were men, and it must have been extremely humiliating. For instance, under the pass laws, there was a curfew for blacks. They weren't allowed out at night without a special pass by their white bosses. And... Uh, they used to come to me and say, Nonny, please, can I have a pass? And I would write out this pass. Please pass Native Sam um, and then sign it. I used to do that pretty well from the time I could write, I suppose, when I was about eight or nine. I remained what I regard as a pretty typical white South African until late in my 20s, even when I joined the South African Women's Army to go to the Middle East in the Second World War, um, I still had these attitudes. In fact, I think it was typified before that, the year before, when I was 18 years old and went to Hollywood by Greyhound bus across America and I was absolutely furious when a Negro dared sit beside me. I thought it was terrible cheek. After the war, Mary worked for a time in Germany with UNRWA, the United Nations Refugee Relief Association. She worked mainly with war refugees, displaced persons who had survived the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps. When I came to write about it later, it struck me very forcibly that here I was um, eating my heart out working among these tragic people, thinking about their lives. And yet in my own country, the blacks who were my fellow citizens were displaced persons in the land of their birth. But it still hadn't struck me even then. It was two years later, while working in London, that the tragedy of South Africa first struck home, that Mary Benson's political odyssey truly began. 
my parents had sent me a copy of a new novel that had just been written by a South African, Cry the Beloved Country, by Alan Payton. And I just read it right through and was quite knocked out by it. There is a lovely road that runs from Michopo into the hills. These hills are grass-covered and rolling, and they are beyond any singing of it. I read those words one momentous day in 1948. They still strike at my heart. Exile gives them added poignancy. Through its revelation of South Africa, the landscape, the people, the black people, cry the beloved country, crashed open the mould in which my white consciousness had been formed. This complex and marvellous country was my country. The place I had found boring and kept running away from was my heritage. One passage could have been about myself. I was brought up by honourable parents, given all that a child could need or desire. They were upright and kind and law-abiding. They taught me my prayers and took me regularly to church. They had no trouble with servants. From them I learned all that a child should learn of honour and charity and generosity. But of South Africa, I learned nothing at all. I found that Cry the Beloved Country had revealed my own country to me as never before. And this beautiful, tragic country was the place I'd found boring and run away from. For the first time, I began to understand something about the lives of black South Africans. I identified very much with the young man who is um, one of the main characters in the book. And his description of his family and how they were good people and honourable people and how well they treated their servants... And yet from them he had learnt nothing about South Africa. That particularly struck home to me. I felt that this character was very close to my own life and my own experience. And I at once wrote to Peyton and I poured out my heart to Peyton. And over the months that followed, we wrote to each other continually. Alan Payton became a major influence in her life. Through him, her perception of South Africa, and in particular of black South Africans, began to change. Through him, she came to hear of a man who would further crash open the mould of her white consciousness, a white Anglican priest who had become deeply involved in the cause of the blacks in South Africa. The Reverend Michael Scott had recently taken the case of the tribes of South West Africa to the United Nations. I didn't even register the man's name until later when I was in New York and read a profile in the London Observer of the Reverend Michael Scott and realised this was the man Alan had been speaking about. 
I wrote to Scott for advice because I knew the one thing I wanted to do was some sort of work in race relations. I had a reply from some people who'd formed a little committee to support his work, telling me he would be back from India the following week and would I come to the showing of a film, a documentary film he'd made. The amateurishness of the documentary film he showed us heightened its effect. The locations and shanties around South African cities where people lived in slum conditions retained an unimagined vitality. Black miners, migrant labourers streamed from a compound. Small boys danced to the sound of a penny whistle and white-garmented members of the Zionist church pranced along dusty paths. He gave a commentary, telling about the pass laws, tens of thousands of arrests, the colour bar and denial of human rights. The revelations which in Patton's book had opened heart and mind were now there before my eyes and I tried to catch up on long years of ignorance by reading all the relevant books and articles I could find. Well, that was the beginning of working with Scott for seven years and going with him in those early years to the United Nations where he lobbied every year, we really felt that he was putting South Africa on the map. I think in the same way that Alan Payton had put it on the map with his novel, which had become a bestseller all over the world, a set book in many schools in America and elsewhere, Scott put South Africa on the map at the United Nations. I think I fell in love with Scott really Almost before I'd met him, that profile in The Observer made a very big impression. And as I'd said to Peyton, I was looking for a purpose in life. And if that purpose could be bound up with somebody that I could love, that was absolute perfection for me. And uh, I think for Scott, it was just a great blessing to him to have somebody really competent and somebody learning very fast and especially somebody who was South African. I think it gave great strength to him. And we made a wonderful team. But then the tragedy of it began to assert itself that he, from the start, began to say he couldn't have anything personal in his life and I didn't take much notice of this because I could see how much he needed me and appreciated me. Towards the end of 1951, I flew home to be with my father, who was very ill with pernicious anemia. That year, the UN session was in Paris. It was hard to leave Michael, fragile as ever, to cope virtually alone. But at least the daily papers kept me in touch. Southwest Africa was front-page news. Very early each morning, the moment I heard the Rand Daily Mail land with a smack on the veranda of our small house in Pretoria, I hurried to read it. 
After Michael's years of lobbying for the tribal leaders to put their own case, the UN finally cabled an invitation to the chiefs to appear before the assembly in Paris. The South African government was called upon to facilitate their prompt travel, whereupon its delegate promptly walked out of the UN committee. And even in this well-known liberal newspaper, Michael Scott was referred to as a hostile foreigner. Britain was among the minority to vote against the invitation because correct procedure had not been followed. When I got home, I was very aware of the problems for the family because to most white South Africans, Scott was... uh, like a red rag to a bull. They just thought he was a dreadful, meddlesome priest who greatly harmed the country abroad. And uh, I think it was harder for my mother because of her brothers working in native affairs. And on the other hand, I went one day with my mother to a township in Johannesburg to help with feeding black children And I wondered how... She'd said she would like to come with me, and I wondered how she would cope. But when the black woman who was in charge of the feeding scheme came up, Ma quite naturally shook hands with her. I was very touched. Seems ridiculous that that could mean so much, but that's the way things were in those days and in our sort of world. My sister was really the one who was most antagonistic. At that time, she was married to a farmer, and they were struggling hard in a very uh, difficult area with a lot of tough Afrikaners there. But later, she came right around and became very supportive. I think probably it was after I'd written the book about Tsukedi Kama, and after Sharpeville, of course, and the massacre, when quite a lot of whites began to realise the truth about the country. I wasn't yet very conscious of being South African, though Michael had said to me that being born in South Africa, of your parents at that particular time, you have a certain responsibility... And I still had to live my way into that. At the time, I was so much in love with Scott that I was still wanting to get back to Britain and to be working with him because I knew how desperately he needed that assistance. However, in South Africa, there was also a great need This great need brought Mary Benson into the townships, into the native locations. We drove along a track, dipping and twisting to avoid dusty crevices covered in dry grass and thorn trees, until we reached tin shanties and hovels, in small, low houses. For the first time, I saw a location with unblinkered eyes. 
We pass stately Herrera women like those in Michael's film. They wore long floral dresses, high-waisted and matched by great turbans, which set off their hermetic features. My last visit was to Wilberforce Mission School in the Transvaal, where a tall black priest passionately expressed the feelings of his people. The whites forget we are men. We are men, and we have feelings. I have one dream, he confided. I long to see a black man as the captain of a ship. My mind seethed with such impressions. South Africa's great need became an all-consuming passion, and Mary became more and more involved in the fight against apartheid, working as secretary to the Treason Trials Defence Fund in the 50s, writing the history of the African National Congress, reporting for foreign newspapers on pass law trials. One pound or seven days. Thump of a rubber stamp as the man was replaced in the dock by another, carrying a bright pink hat. He had lost his book. Eight pounds or eight weeks. Thump of the stamp. A boy came next, very young and very frightened. I was working in the school holidays when I was arrested, he said, and bowed humbly. He was not yet sixteen, the age covered by the law. He went free, but he had spent the weekend in police cells. Several more men followed. They all seemed dazed. Then came one who was aggressively defiant. He had left his book at his workplace, and the police had refused to let him fetch it. Five pounds or five weeks. Thump of rubber stamp. I could no longer control the tears flooding my eyes. Westthorne handed me his large handkerchief. Never had I felt so white, so privileged, so guilty. We were a part of it, witnessing, patronising with our pity, emasculating. In 1963, she became the first South African to testify before the United Nations Committee on Apartheid. Three years later, following her coverage of the Eastern Cape trials, she was banned and placed under house arrest. I'd gone away for Christmas at that time with a friend who said, you know, get away from Johannesburg at least, was staying in a mission hospital in Zululand. And it was very lucky. I had an accident there which necessitated a skin graft, so I was stuck sitting on a bed for a couple of months, and I was able to correct the proofs of my history of the African National Congress, read most of Proust, and that was the time when I discovered the police were searching for me to serve the banning orders on me. I arrived back in Johannesburg at about 6.30 one morning and went straight to a mailbox to post the proofs back to Penguin Books. Went back to the house where I was renting a room and telephoned two friends to say, I am back. <laughs> and I was on the phone to another friend about ten minutes later and 
suddenly this big sedan car drove up the drive with two men, obviously security police, in the front. So I said to my friend, it's the police arriving here. And uh, so he said, I'll call you back. And at the door, they just said, Dorothy Mary Benson. I said, yes, and they shoved all these documents in my hands. Well, when I tried to understand the top page of the banning orders about house arrest and said to the two policemen, you know, what does it mean? They said, oh, it's not for us to say. Go and ask a magistrate or a lawyer. And uh, off they went. Lawyers analysed the bans. Even letters or a diary could be illegal. As most of my books had already been banned, I was not particularly affected by the overall ban on existing writings. But since it was illegal for anyone to quote a banned person, there was no way of protesting. Nor was there any recourse to a court of law. Sentences for breaking a ban ranged from one to ten years. Some of the political people did break their bands and would go to a party and the police would turn up and they'd jump into a cupboard and then they'd be caught and one of Athol Fugard's plays was about that situation and uh, I did in fact on a couple of, well several occasions I did have dinner with my host and some of his guests but we were always watching out in case anyone appeared or we had the curtains drawn mostly but it never felt very comfortable. Um, lawyers just gave me this terribly strict advice that even a diary about daily events and anything to do with South Africa was illegal, letters as well, poetry. Um, and the range of what could be regarded as communistic was so wide that uh, all I tried to do was to make fake notes on a novel I was reading, Saul Bellows Herzog, while pretending to remake those notes I was trying to do things on my novel but that one day when I looked over my shoulder I saw a bearded man peering in my window my room was right at the back of the house so I thought oh they're, they're just uh, keeping an eye but in fact he was a journalist who did have contacts with the security police so I felt suspicious of him. The day-to-day -day reality of house arrest was, however, much more than just not being allowed to write. One of the problems with being banned and house arrested is how you feel about being cut off from friends. And, for instance, um, you're banned from social gatherings from any gatherings at all and under the law it had come to be reduced to meeting one other person and then one lawyer said even if the meeting is pre-arranged that would be re regarded as a social gathering and I was due to meet Alan Payton for coffee one morning soon after and when I met him in the street he said, oh, he'd been warned by a lawyer not to go with me to have coffee. It could be a gathering, and we must just talk in the street. I, was, I really felt very cross with him about that. 
And then I found some friends didn't try to get in touch at all. I think they were trying to protect me, whereas I felt that they were rather letting me down. And I felt very badly that I hadn't phoned Helen Joseph more often. She was the English woman, the trades unionist social worker, who'd been the first of anybody, black or white, to be banned and house arrested. And uh, I suddenly realised how lonely the weekends. You see, before, I would work right through the days and have dinner with friends at night or go swimming with them at weekends. But now it all had to be turned around. But some friends were just wonderful and they would find ways to connect with me. They would even come and sit in the queue in the hospital outpatients where I was having some treatment, talk to me there. I think the worst aspect of the banning was not being able freely to be with many friends. And always when you were with somebody, you were tending to look over your shoulder because if they decided to move in and use any such meeting as uh, as a defence then you knew that that friend would be called to give evidence and would be questioned about it. It had its funny moments, for instance, when Athel Fugard was coming over to London to do one of his plays and his other great friend, Barney Simon, and also Nadine Gordimer, and I met up with him to see him off in a coffee bar in Hillbrow, this very international now it's an almost black area in fact and of course I couldn't be with more than one of them at a time and so we uh, did a sort of pas de deux between tables (laughs) it was ridiculous we were strictly being perfectly legal it was only three of us that sat at a table that they could have come along I mean, we did have another very funny occasion when uh, my room was right at the back of the house and I had these rather old, torn curtains in it. And one evening, Nadine Gordimer, who was a friend of my host as well, came to dinner and came to my room to have a chat with me first because I couldn't join the dinner party. While she was there, there was a great ringing of the front door and we thought, oh, my God, it's the cops. <laughs> and she dashed out of the room. In fact, it was the cops, but they were with the cook who'd been working for my landlord and who'd come to protest that he'd stolen some of her blankets. <laughs> it could only happen in South Africa. <laughs> but in spite of the odd, funny occasion... For much of the time, Mary was her own jailer in a lonely, empty house. How lively the house had been when the few guards had stayed there. Every day we'd had lunch on the veranda, looking out on an ancient eucalyptus, and how we had talked. When the heat became unbearable, we sat inside on shabby, comfortable chairs listening to Bach's preludes and fugues. 
the notes cool and clear in the dim room, while outside insects hummed through the bright air. Now, playing that record intensified loneliness. The loneliness was further intensified by the advice given from all sides to leave South Africa. I didn't want to leave, but the pressures became greater and greater. And uh, then the opportunity came, I suppose an opportunity, when I heard that in Washington a congressional committee on foreign affairs about America's relationships with South Africa was having um, a series of hearings, testimonies. So I did feel at least that could be useful to go to Washington and to speak about all that had been happening and about those trials in the Eastern Cape in particular. Could I leave the country that finally had become home? I felt just being there had a certain value. Yet to stay meant giving up almost all human contact. It meant renunciation, silence. On the other hand, to go could mean forever. I would not be allowed to return without permission from the Minister of the Interior. As weeks passed and I toiled with these questions, I wondered at what point self-mockery began. Weary, but with a curious sense of lightness, I decided to leave. On my last day, I noticed that every red berry had vanished from the tree. At the airport, Pa was photographed by the Sunday Times mopping up his tears. A large gathering of friends saw me off, watched by the security police. It was not until the plane was high over the stark hills of Asmara that I thought, leaving is betrayal. Even one counts. I felt it might be the greatest mistake of my life. Yes, I miss South Africa. What I found when I was finally allowed back for two months this year, at first I felt very strange and almost wished I could rush back to my little box on Abbey Road, but then I just began to be totally invaded by things that really were essences. It was the air and the light and the thunderstorms every afternoon and the bird sounds. And I realised that how much nature and just how things are all around you when you're growing up in a place invade your very being. And it's that that I miss... But at times I am taken unawares. The cooing of an African dove suddenly heard in some wildlife program on television never fails to arouse a pang of nostalgia. A primitive essence of sun, heat, 
summer dry grass. Everywhere buzzing insects hovering above bright flowers, while doves call from a eucalyptus tree.